No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. As most of you know, I do a little bit of chatting with our guests before we actually start. And I have to tell you, I am so excited for you to meet our guest today because, first of all, she's just very real and her story is very interesting. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction to her and then we're going to dive right in. So our guest today is Pax Tandon. There's a story to the name, which I love. And Pax is known as a mindfulness thought leader. So without getting too jargony into being a thought leader, let me just give you some of her background. She has a master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. And for folks who don't know, that's like the place to get your education in positive psychology from. She is a coach, a consultant, a writer, a filmmaker. And if that's not enough, she also makes media appearances all in the purpose of helping people move really into being who they are. And she helps people at all levels, like a beginner to someone who's very seasoned, to elevate their spirit and to flourish. And Pax, there's a couple of things that I found interesting also in in learning a little bit more about you. I love that you have a mission and you're part of an organization that has a mission to train all of the world's children in mindfulness. So that ought to keep you busy for a few decades. (laughs) Or several generations. Or several generations. But I just think that's so powerful because it's like working with a seed so that what grows from the seed is really strong. The other thing I found interesting in talking with you is that you were influenced as we all are from our parents. What cracked me up was that one of your parents, your dad in particular, is a hippie. And we learned that when we were talking about your name and just kind of the genesis of that. So with that, would you just say a little bit more about yourself and then we'll dive in. All right, Miss Sarah Box, thinking outside the box, no pun intended, but actually it was. So yeah, happy to, and thanks for having me on. You know, so much of the genesis of me actually did happen as a product of this hippie parent that you talked about. You know, my father, not only was it, you know, the 60s and 70s, and he stepped right into that role, but he's still in it. Decades later, when everybody's (laughs) passed the the hippie wagon, he's still on that train. He wears the socks and the open-toed sandals. He's, He's full on Gandhi, okay, every day with his canvas messenger tote and everything else. And it was really foundational in my life to have a parent like this because he named me Prakriti. That's my full first name. It's a Sanskrit name, which means nature or the life force. <laughs> How much more hippie can you get than that name? It's, it's right up there with, you know, the Phoenix clan, river, right? Sky, leaf. And then there's me, nature. And actually he wanted to call me nature and my mother vetoed and said, let's call her Sonia. And it's like nature and Sonia. Where's the middle ground there, right? Well, they eventually settled on the Sanskrit translation of nature, which is Prakriti. Well, of course, no one can pronounce that. So over the course of time and years, you know, Pax was the abridged nickname that that's a lot more easy to pronounce, monosyllabic, and right in the same vein, you know, it means peace in Latin. So that all comes together. And It's no surprise to me, and and this is what I think the strength of a name can do for you. It's no surprise that the work that I would do would be so organic, you know, to thriving and flourishing. So much of my journey over the last several many years was, was where's authentic well-being? What does that even mean? 
what does it mean to be happy, to thrive, to, to flourish? And I had to go through this journey on my own to figure out how to embody Prakriti, how to be this natural thriving force. Because, you know, Sarah, at the end of the day, we are not here to suffer. We put a lot of suffering on ourselves for a lot of different reasons, which we can get into. But ultimately, we spend so much time in states of negative emotion, anxiety, depression, what have you, suffering over the past, over the future, when the magic of life is happening right here, right now in the present. And that is mindfulness. And that is why I talk so much about mindfulness, because that is the key, the key to a blissful life, ultimately. And we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're also human beings, not human doings. So, so much of the miracle of this life is actually just being here, you know, and we lose sight of that a lot. So the ability to know how to stay present to your life and find the joy in that and realize that you are a spirit who's here to just play, you know, bop around and, and be a light being that's just kind of dancing with other lights. And I know that sounds a bit esoteric, but you know, I, amongst my well-being initiatives, uh, the let's call it secular, mundane, linear, academic world of the University of Pennsylvania and studying the mind science. I have also really tapped into the spiritual realm, going to Peru and working with the plant medicine ayahuasca and understanding what, what that had to show me and offer. And it showed me a lot, okay? Not least the fact that the surgeon boyfriend I was with, who I really thought I was going to marry, was not the one. So, you know, on all levels, this, this exploration has led me to, to a lot of these ideas of what the human experience is really about and fundamentally how we cover over a lot of the joy of it with unnecessary suffering. So let's dive into that just a little bit more because in a few short seconds, you packed in a bunch of intriguing concepts to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm writing down my little list here. I'm thinking, I hope we get to all of this. So let me ask you this. Can you share with us the difference between being positive or optimistic and positive psychology. I'm going to ask you questions back to back mm -hmm. because to me, they link in my head, which can be a scary place to be sometimes. <laughs> For all of us. Link. That and then along with that, when you talk about suffering, right? And that's, we're not necessarily having to suffer. How do you get I just want you to talk a little bit more about that. I don't have a specific question. I just think that's powerful because I think we put, and I know I'm guilty of it as well, put more on myself than is mine to carry. Mm -hmm. It is an unnecessary, it's just an unnecessary weight, right? It's not grounded in reality, frankly. But I think if we could start with what's the difference between positivity and positive psychology, if there is one. There absolutely is a distinction. I'm so glad you asked that question because this is something that's so important for listeners to also receive and understand. A lot of times positive psychology, you know, when I introduce myself as a positive psychology expert, for example, they'll say, what, as opposed to negative psychology? And they laugh because it's like, that's an original thought from them. Well, I've heard this many times before, but I don't want to take that away from them. So I laugh right along too. And then I, I kind of go into the canned response, which is, you know, that positive psychology isn't about being positive all the time. It's not a happyology. It's not a yellow bumper sticker on the back of your car. It's actually about recognizing that, first of all, 
to have negative emotions serve a really strong purpose in your life. And in fact, negative emotions help engender a kind of change that positive emotions cannot. You need those emotions as markers for where things are coming out of balance and then how to bring yourself back to a place of balance. So it's a very salient tool to show us when something's out of whack, right? Disease is just dis-ease, a lack of ease, which is simply a lack of balance. Our bodies know very well how to do homeostasis, how to do balance, right? And when there's something going on in life that throws us out of that natural balance, right? When we're in a place of balance, we feel good. We feel great. You know, that's the bliss point. When we're out of that balance, we don't feel so good. And these negative emotions, for example, are very important tools to tell us, hey, this isn't, this isn't where you need or want to be, make a change. So that, that's one of the first things I'll say is that negative emotions serve a purpose. We don't want to be all happy all the time, right? In that state, because our greatest force for change, these negative emotions lead to the greatest growth leaps. And that is where we find so much of our flourishing. When we endeavor to do the scary thing, the uncomfortable thing, pay attention to the negative emotions, make the tweaks so that we can grow and elevate higher. It may not always feel comfortable, but that's where we find our greatest sort of amplification of self and spirit, you know, when we make those leaps. In the stretch zone, huh? In the stretch zone. That's where we really want to be. So why do we spend so much time resisting it? And that's the perfect segue into the suffering, right? So much of of what we do to ourselves, the weight that you said we carry is first of all, the mind expectations that you referenced, right? It's all in our heads. It isn't real, right? A lot of that weight is just our own expectations on ourselves. A lot of it is these things that we carry around of resistance to the negative emotions that I spoke about. Well, what would happen if we got so present to our lives? We got so objective to our pain that we were able to see it for what it really is and still be in joy through our pain, right? As Rob Bass sang in the 80s, joy, pump it up, pump it up, and pain. Keep it going, keep it going. We need both sunshine and rain. All right. So that's where I'll, I'll stop with my rap career. But you know, it's such an important part to have the duality, right? To have both and to be able to hold space for both is so key. And we, we suffer so much over our attachment to all these ideas in our heads, over our attachment to, but I'm supposed to be like happy all the time. I'm not supposed to have these negative emotions. And then we pop pills and do whatever we do to numb out to them. Why are we doing that? Which causes its own kind of suffering. We get into this cascade. If we're able to be objective to all of that, see it for what it really is, we're moment to moment living a very joyful life. And that's the essence of mindfulness, really, and the Buddhist philosophy, right? It's, it's a non-attachment, you know, which he said, attachment leads to suffering, right? So this is all about how do we detach from all of this to the extent that we don't have to do this unnecessary suffering thing? So I, that to me seems like it's very relevant to the new book that you have out, but also, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but really the distinction between being aware and mindful of what's going on with ourselves in any given moment, meditation. And I do think I noticed there is a confusion. I know I've had it in the past, but that shift that takes a lot of practice sometimes to just go, I am having the most negative conversation in my head and I didn't even want to be in it, right? But to yeah. stop, 
So how do we learn to be mindful? What's the distinction between being mindful and being like meditative? And what do people do to become more mindful? Great questions. So let's start with the distinction between meditation and mindfulness, right? I like to think of mindfulness as sitting under the umbrella of meditation in general. And let's think of meditation as how, you know, the Oxford Dictionary would define it. It just means to reflect, contemplate, ruminate, right? To think about something, right? So be in a protracted or extended state of thought. Now, mindfulness is a a specific way to do that, which is focus. It's putting your attention on one specific thing. And in mindfulness, you know, we really like the breath because you have it. If you're alive, you're breathing. So you have that moment to moment as a tool to remind you to come back, come back to the present when the mind wanders to thoughts in the future, which is a lot of where anxiety lives or dragged back into the past where a lot of regret and then depression live. It's about anchoring it in the present moment. And so, you know, that's first the distinction between mindfulness and meditation. And as as we try to cultivate mindfulness, this is a focusing tool, right? This is about our attention, our awareness. Where are we putting that attention? So now you can think of your attention as a spotlight. Where are you shining the spotlight of your attention? And when we work this practice, we want to shine the spotlight of our attention on our breath to keep it anchored moment to moment on one thing. That's what helps you cultivate this muscle of your attention. Now, no big surprise that we're living in this like ADD culture, right? We're living in a culture of hyper stimulation and distraction. There are people vying right, left and center for your attention because that attention leads to revenue, right? Leads to a sale. And so we have to be very conscious of not letting our attention just be dragged away from us, but being very regulated with our attention, having control of our attention, knowing it's wandered away. And now I'm going to bring it back to this thing that I want to place it on. We practice that using the breath, but then you can imagine that you can then use that attention to focus on whatever it is that matters to you. Now, if it's a child in the classroom, clearly it's of importance that they be able to actually focus on what the teacher is saying. And somehow you know, we've given kids all of these distractions like cell phones, worst culprit ever to their attention. We give them these devices and then we wonder why they can't pay attention in the classroom. And then we give them Ritalin when really all they need is a tool to help them focus and steady their attention. And across the board, you know, this is relevant for adults as well, but I bring up children because, you know, it's a, it's a very gnarly phenomenon that we're medicating them unnecessarily, in my opinion. So, you know, spotlight of attention is what it's really about and keeping our attention grounded. Now, Sarah, I love what you said about how do we do this? How do we practice? Because one of the first things that I would make sure listeners are aware of, well, the ones that are still listening to me and and attentive anyway, they're listening. (laughs) Is, and if they're not, listen now, because I'm about to give you the Holy Grail tool here. It's to remember that this is a muscle. You don't expect to go to the gym, do you? I mean, and if you do expect this, then we need to work on your expectations too. But you don't expect to go to the gym and lift one five pound weight and walk out of there looking like the rock. And your muscles are going to be popping and that's going to last the rest of your life because of one gym session. No, we don't have that expectation. We know that's not realistic. The same thing works with your attention. Think of this like a muscle. You have to do your reps. 
You have to get those reps in every day to train that muscle to get stronger and stronger. It takes practice. It takes work and time. But trust me to the extent that you put those reps in, you go to the gym of mindfulness, you will have your attention back and solidly within your control. And the best part about it is that when you're able to still your mind, you can go into a place of focus where you can actually now listen to your intuition. And your intuition is your strongest guide for where you really need to go in life. What's going to lead you to more happiness, aligning with your spiritual and essential self. This is so much why I came to mindfulness. My journey was around getting so lost in who I really was and where my real skills and talents were getting so lost because I have Indian immigrant parents whose number one priority was security in this new country of America. And so of course that's going to filter into my life, right? As their children, that's all they want is for us to not have to struggle the way they did for us to have this stable, secure life. So what did that mean? What does it mean for an Indian parent, for a Brown parent? Become a doctor, be a physician and you will have a life of security and stability. And also society will respect you. So multi-layered reasons why they wanted this for me. And at age 14, I remember, I, you know, I went to this high octane college prep school as a product of them setting up this whole life design, right? Of success. And I was in honors biology my freshman year and I got a B. Dun, dun, dun. Cue ominous tones because I needed a B plus to get into honors chemistry. This became, you know, foundational to where I've come to, but also to this major depressive episode that I suffered thinking I was this massive failure. Well, of course, no one's looking over here to my A plus in English. I was sweeping all the awards. I was 99th percentile in verbal ability. Where did we focus on this little lack of a plus? And coming back to positive psychology and its potency, we focus on strengths. We capitalize on what's going right, not what's going wrong, right? And that's so powerful for people to build awareness around where their strengths are. Well, back then, sadly, I didn't have that awareness, that perspective. So I sank into this heavy depression. Well, how beautiful and convergent and in the divine design you know, of life that Einstein talks about that uh, my blood type is literally B plus. So I have B plus running through my veins to be positive. And this is so much of the work I do, helping people really understand how to be positive. And the inflection point in my life, which led me down this path was that lack of a B plus. It's interesting how having that bar, which is actually a high bar for many people, a B, B plus, right? Was a failure. Oh yeah. That's so much of what I love about it because it's all relative. It's all relative to you, your perspective. A lot of that mind state expectation we talked about, that weight that we put on ourselves, it's completely relative to your experience and your trajectory. So talk a little bit about the connection. You talked about going to Peru, doing some work, some shamanic work, I'm assuming, right? But also, I know that you are certified in past life regression. So I'm interested in the connection between those and how those, if they do show up in the work you do today. 
They sure do. I mean, on the meta level, all of these practices are interconnected. They're different, I call them healing modalities, different access points to a variety of ways to find thriving, to find flourishing, to find happiness. And speaking of how individual this journey can be and how it plays out differently, it's all relative, right? The B plus for me was the death blow and then the life blow, but for somebody else, it's irrelevant. So I love that you're, you're pointing that out because it's, it's so individual a lot of healing. It is not a one size fits all model, which is why I've done so many certifications and so much exploring of these different things, because I realized personally that there was no one right answer. I thought positive psychology would be it. It wasn't. I didn't walk out of that, you know, the end of that master's program completely happy. And I was like, wait a minute, that was supposed to be it. What's happening? You know, and and I had to keep exploring. So you know, where past life regression therapy comes in, we'll talk about that first and then ayahuasca because these are really fascinating things to explore. They're wild. Past life regression therapy is really about the notion that this is not the first or last lifetime that we'll live as a human being. So we go through iterations of human experiences in different bodies and different genders and different forms to just live out this spiritual experience. And I found my way to it because I was just really curious again about the capacity that this might have to help people heal. And it was a a scientist, right? A, A hardcore, you know, sort of MD, head of his department, psychiatry, right? So this hardcore scientist finding his way to this healing modality. So I was like, oh, I can get behind that. Like I'll pay attention to this and I'll explore it. Through the process of this exploration, through the training, you have your own experiences with past lives. And when I was finally able to kind of clamp down my left brain, which was shouting at me, you know, I heard my dad's voice. He's an engineer. And as hippie as he might be, he's also a super rational thinker. Okay. So I heard his voice in my left brain shouting, this is all hogwash. What is this thing you're exploring, which is just a whole bunch of crap, basically. And I had to quell that voice and, and try to go a little more right brain, right? Into that theta meditative state. When I finally did, I mean, how powerful. The first thing that I saw when he took us back to day one of our birth and I saw, I saw the hospital room, you know, I saw these stark yellowish, whitish lights. And I remember what I felt and what I felt was sadness, heaviness, depression. And it was all, it was my mom's state of being. And I didn't know what to do with that because first of all, it's, it's such a paradox to how you think people are going to feel when a baby is born, right? It's like balloons and rainbows and butterflies and just joy, right? A baby's born. And all I felt was my mother's sadness. And It took a couple of fits and starts to have this conversation with her. At first, she's like, you need to just let it go. But then I convinced her that that wouldn't really get us anywhere, but, you know, resistance. And I said, I want to learn from this. I saw this for a reason. So what's up? And my mother told me that the circumstances that day were that my sister was a year and a half older. So, you know, a little toddler herself. And my grandmother was also visiting. So my father said, 
you know, it was a C-section for my mother. So he said, you go on and get the process started and we'll meet you later. Okay. So he sends her as a new immigrant to America, knowing not a soul, sends her off in a cab by herself to have this major surgery. Oh, and give birth to a child. Like what? You know, God bless my dad for being one of the most amazing people I've met on the planet. And it's like, dad, you're such an engineer. You've lost your sensitivity chip. Okay. So he sends my mom into this circumstance and she feels desperately unhappy and alone. Right. And I felt into that full circle. The point I'm making is that we're little energy beings. Day one, we absorb all of that. Yeah. And I had absorbed it too. And that created an attachment pattern for the next two and a half, three decades of my life that was unhealthy. I was this unhealthily attached child who would cling like a little monkey, you know, who through her middle school and high school years attached to friendships to the extent that I was always in an anxiety state. If a really good friend of mine was invited to a party and I wasn't, I freaked out a little bit. I was always kind of close on the heels of my sister and whatever she was doing because I felt so insecure about her not being around me. It spilled over to partnerships. I was attaching to them in, in a very unhealthy way that, surprise, surprise, never seemed to work out so well. Guys don't love it when you're hyper-attached and clingy. Hmm, go fix. So it was in that past life regression moment and in talking to my mom about it that I was finally able to see it clearly and release its hold on me. And now whoa, what a weight has been lifted. The way that I engage with relationship now, it feels so balanced. It feels so fluid and easy. I needed that past life experience to help me work my way through it. And so that's really the gift that it gave to me. For every individual, it will be different, but how this shows up in my life, it's just part of the buffet that I can offer of this might work for you, person X, depending on where you are in your life experience and what's been happening. This might unlock a door to freedom for you and, or it might be something else for somebody else. So great segue into ayahuasca. I still felt through all of these past life regression certification, yoga cert, my positive psychology degree at Penn, I still felt like something, something was missing. There was a final frontier. And for me, that, that was the ayahuasca journey. So I find myself in Peru working with an all-female circle and a female shaman. They're very rare. So I, I was just so blessed to even have that sort of essence of the female power in shamanic work and healing. And I saw a lot, which I, I mentioned to you, you know, first and foremost, the first thing I saw first ceremony was that the surgeon that I was dating was not the one. And I had been in a revolving door of like, Indian doctors. So I was able to break free of that pattern. So again, you know, breaking free of things that, that we're attached to, that we need to be objective to and how that may not be in our highest service. Our mind is a very powerful thing and releasing ourselves of that. And again, a lot of it comes back to how I was raised, the expectations that were sitting on my shoulders around being a doctor. It's no wonder that wasn't my true path. I finally got that point then I'm like, oh, I'll just marry one and then everybody will be happy, you know? So that experience was, was a, just a different way of seeing myself objectively and doing that work. And 
I would describe that as, as just walking through fire. You know, it's very hard work. If you think this is going to be some, you know, little drug trip and you're going to have a good time, don't get it twisted. That's not what it is. It's not going to be fun. It is not fun. It's hard work. And, you know, commensurate with the level of hard work you do is reward, right? You see things very quickly. You are purged in real terms, right? Part of the experience is you drink the medicine and then you purge, you vomit. And a lot of this is that the medicine integrates very deeply with you and shakes things out of you that you no longer need, which in a very physical fashion is you just vomiting it out. But a lot of it is also just quickly seeing images, things like that. You could never see that powerfully in this way that we do the human experience, right? And the way that we live life day to day. This medicine takes you through a portal to a different realm and you're able to see the past and you're able to see the future and you're able to see your energy within that whole framework and do very, very quick work and learning around, okay, I see it all. I see what you're trying to show me and then release that which you're holding on to or doesn't serve you anymore. So before... I could probably talk to you for about five hours. Just first of <laughs> all, I do want to tell you, I would love to meet your parents. They, just, Your depiction of them is great, but I just see your dad and your mom shaking their head, just going, what happened here? Oh yeah, totally. Are totally. She's gone the other direction. She has swung the other way. And this through, by the way, Sarah, a divorce, marrying the perfect on paper Indian man, cultural, religious alignment, all that good stuff, checking all the boxes and then getting a divorce. Oh man, was that, was that a crap show? You know, talk about black sheep behavior. I think a lot of times, you know, we need these experiences. Who to, knows your parents may have needed the experience too. Exactly you. right. Exactly right. We all have something to learn. It's not just children learning from their parents, right? So much of this human experience is how we as children can teach our parents too. Absolutely. Well, will you talk some about your book, why you wrote it? You mentioned that your mission wasn't to be an author, but here you are. That wasn't your end game. But yet we're talking about your book. So what is your book about? What do you hope it will accomplish? Great question. So my book is called Mindfulness Matters, as in mindfulness is important, it matters, and as in the matters of mindfulness. The book is really a a manifesto around well-being. So mind, body, spirit happens in three sections, and I talk as much about the science of well-being in each of these categories as you know, my personal experiences, at least a third of the book is anecdotes, story time with packs, you know, and I throw in all of these personal stories to help you understand how I've lived this journey and how this is relevant and how you can apply it to your own life. Because we love stories. Stories are how we really, we have a whole different set of neurons in our brain around mirroring the human experience and integrating that information. And we pay attention very differently to stories. So that's a very powerful part of the book that's going to impact readers, listeners. And then there are just journal activities, exercises throughout the book to help you get sticky with it in that journaling way, right? When we write, it's not only cathartic, but it solidifies concepts in a very different way for us. So I've integrated all of these different components into one work so that I know that we have the best shot at giving you a flourishing existence, right? That you're going to be able to take away what you need to up-level your life. So that on a sort of practical level 
is why I wrote the book and why it will be of service, you know, but backtracking from there. Yeah. I was not on a mission to affect change through mindfulness. This is a real full circle moment for me as an author, because, you know, speaking of that B plus and going down this track of medicine, when that was really just not what I was designed to do, I mentioned that I was killing it, you know, and slaying as the millennials say in the verbal ability space in writing in English classes. I was a voracious reader as a little girl. Like all I wanted to do, I, books. I would stage protests in bookstores in the mall, you know, when malls were really the thing. <laughs> now it's Amazon for days, but that's a separate story. I would sit in bookstores at like age three and stage protests until my mom got me a book. Like, so that says a lot about, about who I was, what I wanted to be. So it's not really a surprise I would have written a book but it was never about mindfulness, well-being. You know, this journey really happened. It, it was a hack. It happened as a product of, of need, of spending so much of my life living this dual life, like a superhero, living this dual existence. And the superhero part of it now is being of service in understanding that first of all, mindfulness is the foundation of thriving. You integrate this practice into your life and you'll be okay. You'll be fine. But it's also about what is all of this anyway, this well-being journey. And because I needed it for myself and went through it and spent years doing it, I can now offer this to other folks as here's what you need to know. I'm imagining with Pretty good confidence. All of your materials are available on your website as well as Amazon. You got it. You got it. Speaking of Amazon in the online digital world. So yeah, paxtenden.com is my website, which has a great amount of info on me. And of course the book is there as well, but Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, all of those outlets. Well, we'll put links to them in the notes for the show, just so it's easier for listeners to hop on over. I have two questions to ask you as we wrap. One is related to your website, and I wanted to know if you might want to talk a little bit about Jomo. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I, I love it. And I thought about, I, you know, that's so great that you wrote on that, because for me, that's such a release to be in. Mm -hmm. It just feels good. So can you talk a little bit about that? And then my last question, so you can ponder as you're focusing on what you're doing. And since you re have regressed to yourself at a very young age, my last question would be, what might you tell little packs that oh, a couple of decades of learning or not since it's a path we're on, but what advice would you give little packs or a twin of little packs who's got her own life ahead of her? Perfect. I love that question. So Jomo first. JOMO's the new FOMO, right? So for those that haven't heard this term, this acronym, it's the joy of missing out, right? So there's this new wave, I suppose a bit of a backlash to FOMO, the fear of missing out, that we can find joy in not going to every event or doing everything, right? So instead of anxiety and fear around missing things, we can start to cultivate a certain amount of bliss and joy from actually missing, missing things and sitting on the couch and indulging in that glass of red or our favorite Netflix series and getting lost and binging that, but not feeling guilty about where we're not 
so that we can enjoy that moment for ourselves, just releasing ourselves of, of that weight of that guilt and stepping into, oh, well, Jomo is a thing. I'm just going to hang with the joy of missing out, you know, and, and there've been a lot of celebrities of late, like 50 Cent, you know, who'll capture himself sitting on the couch or somebody captures a shot of him sleeping on a Friday night where he's like, you're not going to find me in the club because I'm on my couch. And that's cool because I'm hashtag Jomoing. It is very cool. And when people say, well, I'll call you at like 930, I'm thinking, go ahead and call, but you're not going to find anybody who resembles the daytime box. <laughs> I'll be out. And a part of this again is being able to cultivate a very strong awareness of self. What do you want? Not what does everybody else want for you? What are their expectations of you? All of that. It's what do you want? And if you start cultivating every day, a strong awareness of self, being able to, like I said, closer to the beginning of the conversation, regulating your mind to the extent that you can still it and then really start to listen to what's coming up from deep within you. What is your inner self saying? What is your essential self saying to you that you want to like sit on your butt and watch Netflix? Cause that's going to give you joy being able to pay attention to that, honor that, you know, and that's the precursor to Jomo where right? the joy of missing out is where would you rather be? If you're missing one thing, what are you gaining on the other side? And as long as you're in strong alignment with yourself, that you can be confident, that you know exactly where you want to be when you want to be there, that's really the joy of it. And it's a very pure joy. You know, there's no trade-off to that when you're living, you know, in alignment with yourself. To be in alignment as contrasted with to be in avoidance. Exactly. You nailed it. Sitting on my couch because I'm avoiding who I am and what I really should or want to be doing because I'm scared. I'm here because that's what I want in this moment. Nailed it. And that's a mic drop moment, but we won't drop the mic quite just yet because it's also the perfect segue to the second question that you asked me, which was about, you know, at this point, what would I tell little packs? And absolutely unequivocally, it would be Stay in alignment with yourself, right? This inflection point in my life around falling into this deep depression, that was not necessary. I mean, yes, it has led me down this path, which I can now use to be of service as all things in life can be. You know, you can come out on the other side. We call it post-traumatic growth in positive psychology. You can use every experience, especially the most traumatic ones to engender positive change. That's PTG, post-traumatic growth. But, you know, that it's also, there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, if you suffer one depressive episode, especially young, you're that much more likely to have another one. So there are consequences. I would say nobody needs to go through that, not for the reasons I did, which were being so out of alignment with who I really was and what I wanted, deferring that over to parents who had their own view of who I should be and what I should be and being so covered over with other people's assessments and perspectives that I started to drown. And part of this is coming back up for air, having perspective. So I I tell little packs to stay the course. But of course, a lot of this is giving kids the tools of being able to not drown in other people's voices and all that noise, but staying very aware, which is why I advocate so much for mindfulness in schools and for 
children to learn this very young so that they don't lose their way that way. You know, they don't get covered over with all this other crap and noise. They're very strong in, in themselves. And so little packs would have been so happy not giving too much credence to that lack of a plus next to the B, but rather having some perspective on right, cool, whatever I tried, but I'm killing it over here in English, you know, in English class. And as a freshman, by the way, alongside not getting that, that B plus, my essay was chosen to be in the school's best essays, a very high accolade, you know, given the school that I was in and how only four essays were chosen, one from each class. And I was the freshman class essay. That's huge. But nobody was paying attention to that because we were shining a light on this, what's going wrong, not what's going right, you know, speaking of the essence of positive psychology. So, you know, the best gift is having some JOMO because you're so in alignment with where you really are supposed to be and need to be. And that's what little packs would have loved to know too. I love it. That is, it's very liberating. Mm. It's very liberating. So I think I cannot even begin to tell you how much fun and enjoyment I've had from just listening to you and learning from you today. I typically, if I'm having tech issues at all, turn off my camera. Thankfully, I haven't had tech issues. So I've gotten to watch your expressions, which has been fun. And honestly, I, you speak, I get images in my head when you talk. So just so you know, as you're having that conversation with Little Pax, She's in some swimming pool somewhere with a duck lifesaver paddling around. I don't know. She's just like, oh, what? Be what? So um, <laughs> she's swimming, right? She's not she, sinking. She's swimming. And a lot of the metaphor, Sarah, is drowning, right? That I talked about being covered over to the extent you can't breathe or you feel you're drowning. But little Pax is just has her little floaty and is swimming around delightfully. So I love that visual. That's perfect. Well, you transmitted it. So thanks for sharing. <laughs> As another be positive blood person, let's go out and be positive. Woo! Let's do that. Let's do it. Add that plus to your B. You know, you don't need anyone else's validation to give it to you. Give it to yourself. And I think we'll end on that one then. Thank you so much. And I'm going to have so much fun just seeing where you go next. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was such a delight to be here. And yeah, next time we'll have my parents on too. <laughs> That would be fun. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you like what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a No Labels, No Limits, and No Excuses life.